Welcome to the Inspirational Insights Insight to Action podcast. Uh, my name is Donna Jones. I'm your host. And with me today is Mark Zimslowski, the author of Chasing <laughs> He's Polish. I had fun, you know, figuring out how to say this properly. He's the author of Chasing Black Unicorns, How Building the Amazon of Africa on Interpol's Most Wanted List, which I had the pleasure of reading over the weekend. Welcome, Mark. Donna, it's great to be here. Just to give you a bit of background, I love the, the little promo on Mark's book because it's where Silicon Valley meets Indiana Jones. And I read that and I thought, you know, and then I read the book and I thought, yeah, okay, you have just been a lot. The book is centered in what happened in Nigeria, but the whole, your whole story covers just the romp through all kinds of unexpected, crazy conditions that showed up. I mean, I love the whole online network of funeral services and the, the you know, the mafiosa <laughs> back end, you know, I was like, whoa. And, and just, just how you came to where you are today. I, I would really appreciate knowing what was the worst setback and how did you recover from it? Yeah, just to comment on what you said, I, I really had some crazy adventures in my life and I and I figured out that when you make stupid decisions in life sometimes, but you're lucky, then your life is interesting. Because if you're not lucky, you won't get a chance to talk about the stories because you won't be here anymore. <laughs> and, uh, and in business, I always uh, like to choose sectors when competition does not become big anytime soon because everyone else is not thinking about doing it. This is why I landed in funeral business and I, then this is why I landed in Nigeria later. But to answer your question about my setbacks, oh, there's been so many. I think <laughs> that's why I thought you'd have a bit of a menu. You know, it's like <laughs> yeah. Uh, where what should I go with today? Uh, I think definitely my biggest challenge is is the one which also made me write the book, and it was it was the fact that for two years of my life, I was actually living in fear of being extradited to Nigeria where I knew I would spend at least a couple months in jail. And I'm either going to have to sign all the papers anyone would give me, which will mean giving, giving out my company for free and losing everything I have built. Because if I don't do this, I will spend even more years in, in this particular jail. And, and living with that fear of not knowing whether the extradition request is granted or not and what's going to happen to me was the most challenging time of my life, both psychologically and physically, because everything then goes from there but also you know thank god it, it happened it ended with a happy end so now it's a setback that made me stronger but it was the biggest setback of of all my life yeah you mean you could really say in looking at the at the ups and downs and the dips and dives you've been through in your life that you've been in resilience training for quite some time <laughs> you know, I mean, just so many places where where you could have died but you didn't <laughs> that is true um yeah, I've, I've, I've had a lot of things that could have destroyed many people, but I guess with every next uh, adversity you're going through, you're either going to destroy yourself or you're going to somehow get stronger. And um, I think I was lucky to, to go the, the route of, of, getting, of getting stronger instead of uh, getting crushed. And it also, I, I, I I thought about this. I think that part of my personality is that I like chaos and uh, challenges are fun because 
you kind of have to think about it all the time and it's not it's not it, it's not boring i actually had most of the most of the most depressing time of my life you know besides this whole drama was when i kind of felt like i've achieved everything i wanted and that's where the depression comes because like what brings it now to uh, get out of bed as cheesy as it sounds you know the, the, the journey is the fun not, not not achieving the goal so as long as you have tons of challenges but you see a way out that's the fun part because you know that there's a way out obviously you don't want to be in a situation when you kind of give up because you see no way out you don't want to be there but you also don't want to be too long in a situation when oh i i built this business i wanted i have the money i wanted so what now like is this a retirement part that's not a comfortable place to be in if you can't find anything for yourself, you know, new, new challenge. Now, what's interesting about that is your experience is dealing with uncertainty. And here we've got a world that's been dealing with uncertainty. And I, I know for <laughs> you, this whole process of being, you know, in, in the, well, you've been in lockdown for, you know, for a bit, but, but the point yeah. is that it's, uncertainty is, is, a, is a kind of an actually friendly place. It's a, it's a good place to be because it's where you have to dip into your most creative decisions, I suspect. I, I see that in a similar way. And the metaphor that always comes to my mind when I talk about certainty is about relying on people's, what people think about you. When you don't care about what people think, you don't care about the positive things and you also don't care about the negative things, you're in a comfortable place because you just do your thing. When you accept, when yeah. you accept uncertainty, you kind of become free because you're in the stable place where uncertainty is stable. And you, you, release, you, you release yourself from the fake illusion of, of stability, which is now all over the place. And part of me is actually laughing at all those people that were making certain life choices or, or business choices for the uh, sake of chasing stability. And now they realize how, how illusional that was and also how the paradigm changes of thinking about that. And uh, I'm also, I like to say now that, you know, if you are freaking out during this crisis, then I hope that this is your first crisis. Because if this is your second or third, then you're doing something wrong. I've, uh, I've made my first big money in 2004, five. That was in the middle of economical boom in Poland. Literally everything you were touching could turn into gold, as long as you were not too stupid and you were not lazy. Uh, and then I lost everything during 2008 financial crisis. And, and that was my first depression. And then obviously I had all the drama, including Interpol and corrupt Nigerian police and so on. So you can imagine like how upset or stressed I am during this, this particular lockdown. I'm actually enjoying my house because I've never been so long in my house. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, and I'm not going to, I don't want to dip too much into the contents of your book because I want people to read it. it it's so yeah. much fun. I mean, just, just, <laughs> just watching you go through the ride. And I've been around the world a couple of times. I've been in some crazy situations as well, but not too many of them would rival the position you've been in. I do would appreciate you telling the story in a, uh, about the rescuing this poor Polish woman who made a series of bad decisions. Actually, you're the first person that asked me about this particular story, so I'm happy to tell that. So when you live in a country like Nigeria, and I moved there 2012, and I was living there till 2016, so it was four years, it's just a matter of time when crazy adventures start getting to you. It's not like you even have to search for them. I was approached, I think that was started on Facebook by some Polish lady, because obviously she found me because there was this Polish guy in Nigeria, there were some newspapers writing about me at that time, and she really started stalking me. 
And at some point I was like, okay, that's seven phone call. What do you want from me? And then she gave me the story of her sister. Her sister was living in London or somewhere in the UK. She met a, a charming Nigerian guy. He, he told her obviously that he is a son of a, a king as, as they usually are. What they don't tell is that every village in Nigeria has a king <laughs> and so on. And, uh, and they got married and everything was great. And after a couple of months, the Nigerian husband, his visa was about to expire. So he had to go back to Nigeria. He took her in with, and that's uh, where she realized how it, it really is to live in Nigeria in a village with, without, uh, without power, electricity, and so on. Obviously, you know, there are amazing people also in Nigeria. And I, love, I, I have met uh, many women that had amazing Nigerian, Nigerian husbands, but they're also dicks and assholes. And uh, long story short, she wanted to get out of him. But the moment she decided to divert, divert him, this guy totally changed and essentially kidnapped her. I don't know if you can, you can use the word kidnapping your wife, but she was not allowed to leave the house anymore. And she was allowed to call her family only once per week. And she had to talk in a coding, code language. So the other people realized that she's actually in danger. And it took months until they figured out what's happening where she is. And her sister couldn't get any help from the Polish embassy because officially, Polish embassy is not going to send anyone to rescue essentially an ordinary citizen. <laughs> what a Polish embassy can do is call the Nigerian police, which obviously wasn't the case because this guy uh, had, had them in his pocket. So I got an information from the Polish ambassador that, you know, if I find a way to bring her in, they can take her over then and then and send her back to, to to Nigeria. And I thought I'm a hero. I played a hero, and I basically it was a, it was a town in the north of uh, Nigeria. I took a first a flight to the closest city that I knew, and then I took a cab 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 right there because I thought I'm just gonna get her out. And how stupid I was because the moment I reached out to that village, the whole village already knew that there's this white guy that is probably searching for the other white lady. So I was not able to, to, to get to her and I was kicked out essentially from the village. But then how I, I would, you know, I would love to finish the story with some crazy adventure of me being super heroic. I ended up calling a friend who knew a general and the general sent his military guys. It took them a couple of hours just to take her out because no one dared to, to, you know, mess with the, with the military guys. They brought her back to Abuja, which was the capital of, of, of Lagos. And I just met her, gave her, you know, gave her some, some, some cash so she could survive. We put her in the hotel and then the ambassador came in and, and brought her out. So essentially there's not really nothing heroic and the, and the happy ending is so average. Uh, but, you know, you know, it doesn't happen every day in, in the United States or in Poland that someone asks you to help, help that person uh, rescue her sister because she's being kidnapped in her own house by her own husband. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so welcome to my life. The reason why I love the, the, the whole conversation is, first of all, you went up there and then you kind of went, uh-oh, <laughs> there are some variables I had to take. I mean, it's, Boko, it's, Boko Haram. it's their territory on top of that, which is a whole other layer of craziness. There was that part of it, but it's just you knew who to call. You know, that yeah. was that was the part you know, you, we sort of think, OK, you spend four years in Nigeria and you know who to call and they yeah. do it for you. I mean, that's huge. That's huge. It's uh, it, it's it's great and also scary at the same time because when you're running a business in a country like Nigeria, and it was the same thing in Poland in the you know in the early '90s, when they're everywhere, there's a, a early stage of an economy. Unfortunately, corruption is is inevitable, and at some point, once your company gets bigger, you're gonna get attention of of, of the bad guys, and 
having someone to call to help you with is great when you know who to call, but also to live with the fact that you have to know these type of people because things like this happen and you need to know them to protect yourself. That's also like uncomfortable and scary at, at the same time, you know? yeah. which, which is really what got me into trouble yeah? because everyone told me, oh, you're opening another company in Nigeria. You need to have protection because you know, you're not already incognito in Nigeria. You, at some point, some government people or some corrupt police officer can, can uh, you know, start hurting you if you don't pay them for protection, quote unquote. So you need to have a proper, strong Nigerian business partner to, to, be, your, to be your partner and your godfather, essentially. What they don't tell you is that sometimes the people that are supposed to protect you are the ones that, you know, treat you not the nicest way. So um, I guess it, it, nothing serious black and white. Everything has its backside, you know, upsides and, and downsides in, in, yeah. in that matter. Yeah. Of course, that's the beautiful, beautiful aspect of the gray complexity zone. You know, it's all yeah. these variables coming together. You've been to Africa, right? I remember you told me, so you, you kind yeah. of know what I'm talking about. Yeah. yeah, I've been a couple of times. And one of them was, you know, when I was a teenager and we were traveling through. And uh, at that time, they were kidnapping blonde, uh, you know, blonde uh, girls for their special purposes. And uh, they hid me in the back of the van. And I've forgotten yeah. all about this, yeah. but you they were. hid me in the back of the van, put cushions on top of me, and managed to, to talk the gorillas out of taking me, which was a really good thing. And, and there's only, I mean, there was my three brothers and my mom and I, and they said, oh, look, she's too old. My, you know, my mom was too old. And they didn't take, fortunately, they didn't take the van apart. Um, but yeah, yeah. That's, how, that's how I got through that. Yeah, another yeah. crazy story. <laughs> Yeah, but it's all part of it's all part of the you know I mean it's a it's an interest it's one of the most interesting and fascinating continents in the world I think, and and I love I love Africa it's, it's truly fascinating. The, the proportion and the balance between how much risk you you have to take, but also what's the potential price, whether it's quantifiable in terms of financial success or or just the sheer amounts of adventures you can have that you will never forget for the rest of your life. It's worth it. I mean, you go there as long as you know what the risk you, you, you're putting yourself into. It, it's absolutely worth it because there are regions in the world when the risk is also very bad, but the potential reward is, is much lower. So the upside kind of rewards the downside. Yeah. Yeah, that's a good way of putting it. What has crisis taught you? I mean, you, you we, we've alluded to the fact that this book is about the whole experience of being an entrepreneur that's an edge rider, essentially always riding that, that chaotic yeah. edge. But you've also been through crisis after crisis, not the least of which is the shock of being arrested and, and being, you know, on the Interpol's most wanted list. What's it taught you about who you are and, and what's possible? It has definitely gave me confidence that I'm able to go through some hard stuff. <laughs> it has definitely helped me put things into perspective. I mean, there's really not many things that can piss me off anymore because I know how hard life can get uh, sometimes. So what crisis has taught me is how to remain calm in your life because really, we are living a very comfortable life. I've lived in Nigeria for a couple of years. I've seen people that have absolutely nothing and they, might, and they, they are many times happier than we are living in the first war and having all the life comforts you could ever imagine. So... It, it, it put me it put things into perspective made me much more peaceful and actually happy and uh you know i can talk in our we can talk hours how this increases the the comfort of your life on a daily basis 
Yeah, because no matter what's going on around you, you still got a calm anchor inside. And I think that is really the opportunity that uh, this, that the COVID ex interruption or the experience that the pandemic that people are experiencing, it gives is the chance to learn how to train yourself to be calm in crisis, no matter what. Absolutely. It's like a vaccine. You know, it, it's, you couldn't imagine a better crisis. Like we're stuck at home. We have to reconnect with, with, the, with the people around us. We have time to think. We have access to electricity still. Internet is working. We have, we have a chance to complain. The food is there. The nature has the time to rebuild itself. If someone designed this crisis, it, it was a smart design for yeah. the humanity. I couldn't agree with you more. It's a perfect interruption. Let me ask you something. You mentioned in the book, uh, and I love this because I'm a bit of a, a nerd about biology and stuff, but you mentioned that executives paid quote, little attention to how our body and brain biology affects our performance. What did you mean by that? Because there's an awful lot of executives that are completely oblivious to that. Yeah, so everything started when I turned 30 and two things happened in my life. Suddenly you realize that you can't just have four beers and then the next day wake up as if nothing happened. <laughs> Sometimes you, you have a one week hangover after four beers. And, uh, and then, of course, my, my, my father passed away in a very abrupt way. My father was an ex-military guy. He was 45, and he was still running marathons, and he had a six-pack and stuff like this. So I always was living under the impression that I am invincible because I have the best genes ever because I looked at my dad. And then suddenly he just died because he had an undiagnosed uh, genetic condition. So that kind of changed my whole paradigm, and I really got myself into, into biology because you, then you realize we've put the man on the moon, so they say, <laughs> uh, just kidding, uh, but we don't really know what's happening. We don't know the basic stuff that's happening into our body. We live in, under this assumption that our medicine is such an amazing thing. It's almost like magic, but the medicine is really magical when it comes down to uh, saving you from an accident or from some acute situation. The medicine is really very, very backwards in terms of making our lives and our bodies healthy in the long term. And, and the world we live in is actually destroying us, but it's a very, very slow death. So I was like, I want to treat my body also like my project. Um, and I want to understand how my biology affects my decision-making as a, as a business person. Because I read this book, The Power of When, when you realize that the same judge makes different decisions about the same cases, depending if it was 8 a.m. Or, or 2 p.m. And I, then I was like getting deeper and deeper into this, down to the rabbit hole. I started to analyze how the amount of uh, uh, flora, uh, you know, uh, microflora, amount of bacteria, excuse, forgive me, my English is at my best, uh, how it affects uh, your, your general mood, how your hormones balance, hormones level affect how you basically think. And these are all the basics that you kind of get mentioned in biology, but obviously you never pay attention to it when you're in high school because you care about other stuff. And I got myself into this health and fitness and longevity thing not because you know i was crazy about saving animals and stuff like that i was like okay so what do i have to do to be a better manager and be a, a more successful entrepreneur what type of sport do i have to practice uh, in order to be happier or, or more efficient if i'm an accountant i'm probably gonna want to practice a different sport than when i'm a ceo because maybe i have more adrenaline at work than i need that sport again i used to play volleyball when i was 20 but it's, it's an amazing sport, but you get a lot of injuries. So when you reach 30 and 40, you want to switch to sports that kind of protect you more than, than you know, really use your body. And on every, every aspect of my biology, 
whether it's my skin, my stomach, my activity, hormone levels. I always look at it from the context of how this affects my body and my decisions, my alertness in, an, in a way that I'm not aware of, but it still kind of controls what type of a machine I am. Uh, I'm not sure if that makes sense. Uh, and I really got myself into this rabbit hole. <laughs> It's a rabbit hole I've been down. I completely understand because once you start, once you start understanding it from a biodynamic point of view, it get it, it the whole world starts making a whole lot more sense. You you appreciate yeah. the you know the importance of what food am I putting in? What's my social environment? What you know? What am I? How am I thinking? How is my thinking yeah. affecting my well? I mean, it sort of hits that you on all hold these dimensions, which all of a sudden yeah. gives you a whole lot more control about about how you experience life. Because once you become aware of it, then you can take action on it. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 yeah, yeah. Pretty handy, pretty handy indeed. When you're looking at executives today, what can they do that would make them help them make better decisions? I mean, you're an entrepreneur, so you're used to edge riding. A lot of these executives may or may not be used to that. There's a lot of a lot of executives that are really sitting on relying on yeah. very past beliefs and old practices. What yeah. can what can they do that would up their game at this point? I mean, on one side, human brain is such an amazing organism organism or 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 a machine that allows you to believe at two two contradictive two contradictory things at once we're we're so great at it look at religion look at smokers that know that smoking kills but they're still smoking we're very good at it at the same time when we enter our business world we forget about this and we become extremely rational every successful executive is ruthless about data is ruthless about statistics in god we trust everyone else bring data and so on and so on (laughs) And if they only kind of took this approach of how they're running their successful business and took at least part of it and applied it to the way they approach data about their body and and all the information that is given to them from the outside world, their lives would change by an order of magnitude. Let's start with being able and having a proper habit to uh, collect enough data about your body. Like how many how many times do you look into your Excel about how your company is operating, and when was the last time you've checked the numbers of your blood blood result to start with? When there's an issue with your company, you would never believe only one person because you feel like you know what she's saying makes sense. You want to hear to the different side. Yet you're so excited when you found one article that says that red wine is not that bad because you're just cherry picking whatever fits your your current preferences. You kind of forget about all those rational aspects that made you successful in business when it came down to comes down to personal life, and uh, I believe there's a lot to change if we kind of learn, uh, uh, you know, learn, uh, take the good things about personal life, bring them into business, you know, be less less of a less of an asshole, more of a uh, understanding boss, and also from business bring that concept of being as, uh, hard on the problems, tough on the people, uh, looking at data not intuitive things that intuitively you buy but are not necessarily true oh gosh i appreciate you saying that because what we're really talking about in intuition is pattern recognition and and just the i you know i noticed in the book a number of times you mentioned and confirmation bias kicked in and you know you notice the patterns that you're that you followed in making your decisions and that's huge because at least then you can sort of interrupt it much you know interrupt the pattern and and just go what am i relying upon here you can ask yourself you can do that check before yeah. before making the next decision and and I also appreciate what you said about uh, 
about just that decision-making side of it where, you know, this whole business about rational and, and intuitive being two separate departments and <laughs> the executives think that better decisions are not made relying on rational. They're made when you put those two together. So yeah. thanks for that. I really appreciate that. You know, that last part, and, and I'm going to tease this a bit for people that haven't read the book yet, but mm-hmm. that last part where the investor company came in and they made some decisions that we've all seen before, you know, the decisions that say, okay, we're going to come in and it doesn't matter that you spent this many years building this up. It doesn't matter that you've done all this incredible relationship building with the people. It doesn't matter that you've given people the autonomy to make their decisions and own, you know, and and contribute and be a part of this. We're going to take all of that away because we have a better idea. Yeah. What patterns or what did you see that, you know, I mean, that's the epitome of what most companies do. They say, oh gosh, this is working. Let's go in and destroy it. What actually works against, you know, successfully starting and scaling a company? What did you learn from that whole experience? I'll ask it a couple of ways and you can take it whichever way you want. Sure. So, and I've seen this, I've seen this problem over and over again, every time I was building or I was a part of building and growing fast an international organization. Just like in every society, there's this always conflict of interest be- between the, the freedoms and the needs of, a, of an individual and the, and the needs and, and, the, and, and, and the well, well-being of a, of, a, of, a, of a society. And when you look at that problem from, from an angle of a building an international organization, on one side, you have this, this dynamics that where you want to unify as much as possible. Uh, in terms of processes, because unifying processes allows you for automation. Automation allows you for fast, faster movement and growth. However, in order to be successful in every market you're in, you need to take into account the specifics of every market. And every, every mar- people, when you look at growing your company to Nigeria or to United States or to Poland or South Africa, Australia, Every person in, in every local market will tell you the exact same thing. My market is different than everyone else. <laughs> and obviously, there's always this conflict of interest between becoming the best you can be in your local market, but doing that, you're always going to trump the, 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 the concept of still being a, a, a centralized company that wants to be also big globally. And when you look at you know, huge companies like, for example, Booking.com, which is the absolute leader in online hotel bookings all over the world. It's definitely an absolute leader worldwide. But then you realize that when you look at case by case, country by country, it rarely happens that they're actually the leader for every country. They become such a big global player because they're number three, number four, number five, number two in so many countries. Because you can't be amazing in a local aspect everywhere at once and at the same time be a global leader. And that's what happened to me because I've gotten a huge investment from this big international player that gave me huge amounts of independence and allowed me to run my company for three years without any interruption, which was amazing for me and it allowed me to to become a leader in my local market. But the moment my company had become bigger and the people at the top decided now in order to take us to the next level, we have unify everything and and centralize and do an IPO, then obviously it had to do with me giving out a lot of my independence for the the bigger good. 
Now that I understand this, and, and I talk about it in such a calmy way, but back then I was absolutely furious because they were essentially dismantling a huge part of, of, my, of my work. And I don't think you can have a cookie and eat a cookie here. But uh, obviously a couple of years ago when I was a young and cocky CEO who thought he knows everything best, my, my response to that was slightly different. <laughs> <laughs> Involved a four-letter word, I suspect. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. What did Nigeria teach you? Yeah. You landed there as a young entrepreneur and you got this huge responsibility and you hit the yeah. ground running. You learned a lot. I mean, you learned what most companies yeah. fail to learn. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I didn't invent a light bulb. I found one thousand five hundred ways not to how not to build a light bulb. Yeah, how somebody said. I think uh, so. Two. I want to say mention two things. One on a personal level. One on a business level. On a business level, this is the simple thing. Now it sounds so obvious, but back then it was a you know aha moment. We were into online business. We were. We wanted to build the Amazon of Africa, the Booking.com of Africa, the Uber of Africa. We had seven business models like this. And uh, you realize that just because you're building an online business doesn't mean the challenges are online. Because our biggest challenges in building an e-commerce business were logistics and warehousing because there was no DHL. <laughs> there was no bookstore I could book, get the books from to sell them online. I have to build the offline part of the business to build on, online on top of it. So that was amazing uh, eye-opener because there was no infrastructure to allow you to build technology business on top of it. And then on a personal level, when I arrived in Nigeria, I heard a joke. Nigerians were making fun of foreigners. The joke goes, it's a question. It goes, what's the difference between a foreigner, a tourist, no, what's the difference between a tourist and a racist? And the answer is one week. Uh, and actually, it's a very wise joke because you have this problem when you're arriving in a different culture that you've been used to to your own culture which means certain level of certain way of doing things and certain way of thinking about stuff it's so embedded in you because you were born and raised in this culture that it's just inside you on a subconscious level and when you suddenly arrive in a new in new country new region new culture and everything is done differently not because it's worse or, or better that's a separate conversation. It's just different, but it's also done this way. Your whole body is frustrated. Your whole body is confused on a psychological level and on a physical level. Like, why are these people eating the, which side do you start eating your egg from the top or from the bottom and so on? It, it, the difference really doesn't matter, but they frustrate you because on a subconscious level, it's different than what you're used to. And it's an easy way, and it's a thin line between a frustration and then being a bigot, xenophobe, or, or even racist. What I had to really learn in order not to turn my life into hell is how to unlearn everything I've learned, shut up, and just open myself. And the first couple of months that I did was all about learning and listening and acting as if I'm a child again on a cultural level and just trying to absorb everything that is happening around me to get used to the new way of doing things. I'm going to give you an example. If we would, were talking now in a coffee shop, in a public space, we would probably be relatively quiet, you know, because you don't want to mess up other people's, you know, lunch and so on. It just would be considered rude. And if you met, if, if there was a couple, I don't know, both black, a black couple talking to each other, if they were from a certain tribe from Nigeria, they're most likely to be talking very loud to each other. Because in the culture of that tribe, if you're not talking loud, that means you have something to hide. You're shady. You're a fraud. 
And I mean, you, you probably think that they are rude. They don't know how to behave. But this is also an eye opener. So that approach of understanding that things you're used to is just what you're used to. It's just a culture and you have to learn how to unlearn. It's extremely important when you're running an international business, you're traveling a lot and uh, you're working with people coming from different backgrounds because uh, forget about like certain misunderstandings. It's all about how you are uh, reacting to uh, people doing things in a different way. So that was uh, obvious, but but very powerful lesson, which helped me many times later. Yeah, I can appreciate that. And and I know that, you know, whenever I mention the word Nigeria, because I've been telling people about us having this conversation, and, and they immediately go, Nigeria, princess, scams. And and so <laughs> it, it's really interesting that, that, that it was the Nigerian court system that actually stepped up for you in this process that you went through. Yeah, that's, that's the irony. Uh, and the moral of my story, uh, among others, is that I really fell victim of a stereotype. Oh, you're you're this you know unexperienced European entrepreneur. You wanna you wanna take yourself a godfather, someone that will protect you in case you're gonna get attention from the bad guys. And obviously, this I I, I had a part business partnership with a huge Nigerian company that has been on the market for thirty years because it gave me the sense of stability again, a very illusional one. But the people that were running this company that essentially tried to take over my company were guys with one, one Indian passport and two American passports. And, and the people that really helped me was my absolutely courageous Nigerian lawyer who wasn't afraid to go to police and then got kicked out and trying to get my docu- court documents because they disappeared. They magically disappeared, as they always do. So many other Nigerian friends. And in the end, I won the case in Nigerian federal court. I'm the the first foreigner in the history of Nigeria, and I hope the last one, that took Nigerian police to court, and the judge wasn't afraid to rule in my favor. I mean, the evidence was there, so, but he still, he wasn't afraid to, to, to rule, and, and in an obvious case, he might have just also, you know, decided to, you know, for some reasons, prolong the case, etc. So, it was a lesson that, uh, you know, you don't want to believe stereotypes. <laughs> Yeah, no, and I I really appreciate that because it's the unexpected. People have stereotypes, they go up the ladder of inference and they decide, well, gosh, the word Nigeria means this just happened. And well, it didn't. And and so that's what I find really lovely about the story is it presents a completely different version. Although there's one funny thing, because, you know, there's this always a stereotype of this Nigerian prince that has this house full of cash just waiting to ship to you. You just have to give him your credit card. Actually, in 2014, when the new president was elected, and obviously whenever they change the power, there's this whole, whole chase uh, after the, the old power to, to make a statement that now it's going to be better. And there was actually a huge bask in, in Lagos, and it was all over in the press. There were photos. They've caught this one young guy sitting in his apartment, working at the computer, and actually in one of his rooms, the room was full of stacked dollars. And and the whole Nigeria, you know, Twitter and all the journalists, it was all over the press that this is this Nigerian guy that was sending all those emails. He's real. Here he is. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. wow. Wow. That, that's a great story. I love it. There's been some kind of mention on, on the news, on the international news, about the need to rescue Africa as a nation out of the post-COVID, you know, and the economic interruption and just 
just not only just the economic side of it, but the food security side of it and so many aspects of, of um, what goes on in, in, in life, especially in Africa where there's biodiversity is incredibly important. We've talked about that. Is it, will Africa need help from the rest of the world? And, and if not, what, what needs to change? Well, Africa definitely needs a different approach and different type of partnership or help. I mean, it doesn't matter how you're going to call it. Because what's been happening for the last 50 years or 70, uh, depending on how you count it, after the country's political independence, it's just not working. Uh, the, the way countries were decolonized, giving them political independence with really no economical independence is, the, is even worse than the colonization itself, people say. You know, there's a lot of conversation in the U.S. and the Europe about so-called stimulus packages because they work so well when country gets destroyed and then you can rebuild like Marshall Plan after the Second World War or, or the Roaring Twenties after First World War in the U.S. But those type of stimulus packages don't work when it's not about bringing back to where we were, but strategically growing. This is why the so-called aid is just hasn't been working for all the decades in Africa and if you think about it, Africa was on a stimulus plan for the last 50 years. And uh, if you're going to throw another zero to the checks, it's not going to change anything because the, the system itself is broken. In terms of Corona, Africa is really not, not that bad of a situation as you could expect. Obviously, people are hungry. But just because this, this rule of lockdown that came from China is absolutely unforceable in, in Africa. First of all, there's like eight people living on 10 square meters. You can't self-isolate them from anyone. Second of all, 85% of people in Africa live day by day. If they don't work in the morning, they won't have anything to eat in the evening. So right now in South Africa, government started deploying food. And in, in one small village, there's like a five kilometer line for the food. You, you can't feed all the people that cannot work. So this absolutely doesn't work. And self-isolation is already uh, an illusion. At the same time, Africa has closed their borders uh, relatively early. Not, not too many cases have been... Uh, uh, reported and also Africa has a very young population and it's actually very healthy because there's no public there's no healthcare so if someone was sick that person is already dead so those who are alive are pretty strong uh, apparently people malaria is very you know malaria has always been a problem in Africa but seems like people I, I'm, I'm just speculating now but it seems like people who have been dealing with malaria have a higher chance of uh, surviving uh, corona and it seems that the hospitality rate hospitalization rate and the death rate is actually much lower than in states in Europe where people are much older, they have civilization issues and their bodies are in general much less immune. So definitely Africa, yes, needs a different approach to the structural economical problem, but it's not related to COVID and just giving them an additional stimulus plan just because of COVID won't, won't, won't move the needle. That's how I look at it. Yeah, great. I appreciate that. Because as you said, you know, I was saying there's been some talk about countries coming to rescue Africa. And I think it's probably one of the most ingenious communities in the world when you can put kids, give kids um, Android phones and within and they've never seen them before. And all of a sudden, poof, they, they're really ingenious people. I mean, and resourceful and phenomenal. They've always blown me away with that capacity. And so as soon as you start feeding too much aid, you kill that I think you kill that uh, resourcefulness. Oh, yeah. I mean, uh, intelligence is, is distributed more or less evenly. Uh, it's just the lack of, of uh, access. I believe, I believe there were some studies I've seen about the mathematics result of kids in uh, primary schools in the UK. 
and the kids from Nigeria used to, you know, score uh, score the highest among other uh, uh, nationalities. And I think there's something to it. Yeah, interesting. What's next for you, Mark? My next thing is to figure out my next thing. <laughs> <laughs> I um, I had a very interesting two years. Uh, I don't want to spoil too much, but I was writing book with my right hand and then writing court documents with my left hand. Then I was busy with the book promotion. I kind of was recharging my batteries. You couldn't really go back to business as long as I was on Interpolis. Now that everything is over and I've recharged my batteries, I gave myself a goal that whatever I'm going to get myself involved in, because obviously I'm an entrepreneur and I want, I'm searching for my next big thing, what, what to do now. Uh, I'm getting out of my comfort zone and I want to get involved for at least 10 years in this new project. Because when I look back in my life, you know, I've, I've been, I've had amazing adventures with, with a couple of companies who have done some cool things, but my adventure with each company usually ended around third or fourth year because I'm always the most excited about the early stage. I'm slightly allergic to Excel. And once the company is big, uh, the fun is not there anymore for me at least. But the problem was that I was never able to build a really great company with, that leaves a really you know, huge legacy. Yes, Jumia uh, uh, has ended up on New York Stock Exchange and the other companies are still uh, doing very well and they exist, but it's not what I ever wanted. And uh, having them thought in your head that, okay, now whatever I'm going to get myself involved in, you have to stick to it in 10 years. It's exciting and also very scary. And I'm taking my time to, to find the proper business that checks all the boxes. I'm happy with what I'm doing. Uh, it still allows me to travel and, uh, and, and I'm making money, but it's also not, you know, too destructive for to the, uh, not too destructive. That's a very easy goal, but it's also uh, helping the environment in, in a way and, and, and many other uh, points. So I guess I'm taking my time to do that. Seems like it's going to be renewable. Uh, I've, I've done e-commerce for 10 years now in total, but yeah, I'm enjoying not having to rush and uh, and also you know coronavirus maybe it's not the best to make any 10 years long decisions <laughs> well not everything is yet set in stone well it hasn't stabilized yet and, and let's hope when it does it's not where it was that it's actually the business has taken at least from my point of view a pretty large leap in terms of relevance to you know grander purpose shall we say bigger goals than the quarterly yeah uh, i think I there's a real opportunity for leadership and I hope we t I hope that's taken. Where do people go for your book? So the easiest thing to remember, if you guys are listening to this, is is the website uh, chasingblackunicorns.com. You can get their information about the book, my TED talks, information about myself, my social media handles, as well as links to all the platforms where you can get the book, Amazon, Audible, you name it. If you don't mind me, I can I would like to also mention that uh, all the revenue from this book goes to a charity as well as uh, all the revenue from any speaking engagement I'm getting, it all goes to that one particular thing, which you can also read about on, on this website, chasingblackunicorns.com. Thanks for letting me share that. No, I'm so glad you did. Wonderful conversation. Thanks very much, Mark. Pleasure of mine. Thank you again. I'm Donna Jones. I provide personal growth for business, mentoring leaders and decision makers who are really ready to adapt their awareness and inner skill set to both meet and match the complexity and speed of change. I also bring intuitive insight into decision making and leadership expansion so that collaboration can benefit from conflicting perspectives and higher trust. By embedding a healthy balance between certainty and uncertainty, growth, 
at a personal and organizational level has a serious chance. Contact me through LinkedIn or through www.fromInsight2Action.com. And it's Donna, D-A-W-N-A.